0: This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Hi and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk on the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. Now I've got to say I love doing this show because I get to chat with some absolutely fantastically interesting people and this week is just no exception. The topic this week starts off with
1: the brain. You have to make or three little holes like ice fishing holes, and then you take a saw with a foot plate and you connect the three holes and you lift up literally like the size of a large cookie if needed uh, a piece of the skull.
0: Dr. Rahul Jundial, he's a neurosurgeon and an academic, he's a researcher into how the brain functions as well as being an actual surgeon. And uh, in the first of a series of, of four programs, this first one we talk about pain, how the brain perceives it and how we might be able to do something about it amongst lots of other things. Now there are some people that say phones and how we interact with them are changing the way our brains actually work. Well I don't know about that but I do know they do change our lives quite a lot and we need to be careful about spending too much time just swiping on our phones.
2: I'll be scrolling whilst watching the TV sometimes. It's, and they say men can't multitask. I've proved them wrong now. I chat with
0: actor Will Meller and Kate Parkin of OnePlus on some ideas on how to address this problem.
3: let back UK. Run by my daddy.
0: Rahul Jandial is a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist. He's based in Los Angeles and I had an absolutely fascinating chat with him, I've got to say, and that's going to be uh, over a series of four programs. The first program, uh, this one, uh, we spoke about, well lots of things actually, but we kind of, we majored on pain and how pain might affect us and we mo- what we might be able to do about it. But I started off just by asking him, what does a neuro- neurosurgeon
1: Actually do. that's an interesting question right off the start because neuro is a word in front of many different careers. So you have neuropsychiatrists and they're people who deal with mental health and you have neurologists that give you medicines for dementia and Alzheimer's and and Parkinson's, but they don't operate on the brain, they don't operate on the skull, they don't operate on the spinal cord. So a neurosurgeon is a broader category than just brain surgeon because it lets you speak to not just the brain sitting up there, seemingly isolated with the skull, but all of its tentacles, the main spinal cord that comes down in the middle of your body through the spine, as well as the nerves that come out to your face. So we operate on all those elements, the brain itself, of course, and we we have to get through the skull. You don't get an orthopedic surgeon to get through the skull. How do you do they, that? So become, how, how do
0: you actually get through someone's skull?
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> so we're going to have a fun conversation. That's the way I describe it about with my kids is when you go to the, the auto mechanic and they have to take the bolts off the wheels before they can you know, uh, change the tire, And there's that pneumatic, uh, pneumatic cord. It goes, zoo, zoo, and it's air pressure powered. So we have a hand drill. It looks like a fountain pen. And once we peel back the part of the scalp, and that you can imagine, it's an incision and reflecting back. Yeah. But then when you get to the bone, you have to make two or three little holes, like ice fishing holes. And then you take a saw with a foot plate, and you connect the three holes, and you lift up literally like the size of a large cookie, if needed, uh, a piece of the skull. That's and neat. underneath it, you, you don't see the brain immediately. You see the brain sheet that's the dura mater and then when you slice that open delicately after you pluck it up just a little bit tent it up a little bit with some forceps there's clear fluid underneath that spills over and then you see the the heavenly marble if you will
0: this is amazing i mean <laughs> i've never I've never actually spoken to a surgeon or a brain surgeon about this sort of thing but what you know what does it actually feel like when you've got someone on the slab and you've just made a, a hole in their skull and
1: you've got your hands in their brain. But yeah, not- well, it's, it's, it's something to see. You know, I, when I, the first time I saw brain surgery, I, I, the, uh, the first moment I thought, are we supposed to be here? I had seen <laughs> surgery in the abdomen. I had seen leg surgery. I was in medical school. And it's what you imagine. It's flesh and bones and guts and blood vessels. But this structure is glistening white despite it receiving 20% of the blood flow coming out of your heart. So why is it white we don 't know, and it 's got this these undulating creases and valleys, and it 's not gray it 's glistening white like a pearl because it 's alive and it 's under the operating room light. So when I saw the professors expose the brain, the naked brain, I just thought, "Are we supposed to be here? Can the patient survive this? It was that sort of visceral of a reaction, and then at the same time, it was this is what I, this is what I want to be good at. This is the most amazing. Complicated thing in the universe. So, and we never put our hands on or in the brain. It's, I, was, I, think see, I it was as, a bit facetious when I was saying sticking oh, your hands yeah. in the brain. Yeah, I kind <laughs> I of <laughs> I've missed that, but I always tell people think about holding a, some different types of chopsticks in each hand and the tips of it tinker with the brain. You never, like abdominal surgery or lung surgery or even heart surgery, you don't really get your paws in there. You, you do it from a distance through the holes in the skull. Uh, it is that delicate. And it doesn't bounce back. If you push on your thigh, there's recoil. If you push on the heart, there's recoil. If you push on gut, there's recoil. Yeah. But if you push on the brain, you will barrel through. So it's soft like flan or blood, uh, bread pudding. So it's a very different tissue for somebody to sculpt. Sure.
0: Okay. And you can actually tell when you're looking at the brain, operating on the brain, different parts of it. Is
1: that, is that right yeah and that's that 's the training uh, that 's the training once we go off into uh, brain it 's very different than everything else and what you see in the movies and in your mind you imagine you take off a square or a circular piece of skull and you look down and you see those iconic ridges that 's the canopy of a tree that's the that 's the cap of a mushroom the Interesting parts of the brain that are technically more challenging to operate on are what's underneath. So that would be where the stalk of the mushroom meets the cap of the mushroom. If the brain is a tree, it would be where the branches are funneling uh, towards the trunk. We operate underneath the canopy you're familiar seeing, and those operations require an exquisite amount of detail, uh, knowledge, as well as technical skill. Many neurosurgeons will not operate deep inside the brain. Uh, because it is an advanced level of training
0: right okay so not only are you a, a neurosurgeon but you're also a scientist an academic doing research into um, cancers that affect the brain is that correct
1: yep absolutely so part of the diseases that affect the brain of course you can imagine trauma you can imagine infections you can imagine uh uh you know the catheters that we put in to deal with the electrical signals and then the brain tissue can grow in an aberrant way and sprout a cancer which looks like a cauliflower stuck inside beautiful glistening flan and that has to be removed and after years of doing that and you see the patients often struggle and you see that there's profound limitations to just what you can do with your hands You have to start thinking of the brain from a neuroscience point of view, the biology of what's going on, because if we find the Achilles heel to the biology, then we can come up with a cell therapy, like a stem cell therapy or a CAR T cell therapy. We can come up with a molecule. We can come up with a drug that does the work that does the work where we fail. So once you see the uh, challenges with just removing a brain tumor uh, surgically, If you want to help those patients, you have to become more than a surgeon. And that's what I do. I got a PhD in brain science and in my laboratory. We try to understand the epic Star Wars kind of warfare between a rogue brain cell versus one that has stayed in line and functions uh, with the unit. And what is going on with those two cells as they spray each other with chemicals and as they physically attack each other? understanding that biology is how we find medicine we don't get it from the amazon anymore we have to invent it based on the biology of brain science so both those things cutting out a brain tumor trying to understand the laboratory it's just been an exciting career and a wonderfully satisfying career that i did not expect for myself since i was a i dropped out of university for a few years so i didn't i didn't think i would find my way back let alone to a career as a Brain surgeon and a brain scientist, so I'm very grateful to have the uh, the exciting opportunities in front of me, and all of them are it's cathartic because you you're competitive, you're trying to do great, and it's always in the end to help people. So that's a uh, that's a great way for me to uh, to find purpose in my daily uh, routine.
0: Right. So you know it's it's not like you haven't got enough to do. You've been a neurosurgeon and been an academic and doing research. You've also You've also written a book, Life Lessons from a, a Brain Surgeon. And I, I kind of get the impression that this book is kind of what patients have taught you about the functioning of the brain and the yeah. mind. Is that more or less it?
1: Yeah. And actually, the, those 10 years where I've been a brain surgeon and brain scientist, I was listening and seeing ridiculous claims on the web, on television shows about the brain, you know, left brain, right brain. and creativity lives in this one spot of your brain. I just thought, this is not what we know. This is not what we understand. And so how is all this misinformation out there about essentially us, right? Our brain, the the body is a vehicle of sorts. right? And so I, I, didn't, I didn't want to come out too early and smash and redirect some of these, you know, myths. So I wanted, you know, I'm 10 years out. I'm, I'm 46 years old. I've been a brain surgeon and a, Professor of brain surgery and brain science and cancer science for about a decade and and I just started cataloging those things and that morphed into a book
0: Right. Well, actually, it, it's interesting you say you, you you were kind of upset about some of the misinformation because I, I'm not a medical guy But I get upset about some of the misinformation that you, you come across on, on the web about all sorts of different medical things mm-hmm. so we, we have that in common at, at, at least um, I'm very keen to ask you uh, about some of the, the you, these life lessons from a brain surgeon that you've you've learned. And um, let's go just, for it. Yeah, maybe go in sort of different topics. And the first section that I'd be keen to ask you is something that really destroys a lot of people's lives, and that is pain, chronic pain. You know, lots of people suffer from pain, and it just turns their life upside down. So. If I may, I'll I'll ask you a few questions about that. Um, Starting off, I mean, people suffer from chronic pain for years. Do they ever actually get used to it?
1: They do. That doesn't mean you will or that we should expect them to. But I like to, I don't like to give answers because that implies I know the the final answer (laughs) or the answer. But I'll just tell you some interesting things I've seen about pain. When I was younger, I had heard stories about people with pebbles in their shoes or certain type of um, discomfort, and the brain, after a while, would tamp down the signals coming up that were, that were creating this, this bother. And I saw that in my patients when they have certain nerve pain after surgery, a lot of times it cools off, but it takes time. It takes a year or two years, and if we give them antidepressants, which change the way those pain signals are landing onto the brain, their perception of pain, which is really pain itself, can go down. Um, So I started noticing these sort of things and I thought, well, how how is that? You're on an antidepressant. So that, that also taught us that if you are depressed, the same noxious stimulation will lead to a greater perception of pain. So if you stick a tiny needle into the foot of somebody who's not depressed, compared to somebody who is the depressed person reports a much higher uh, perception of pain. So there's not just the signals coming up, it's the perception. And by no means am I implying that people who are in chronic pain are making it up. No, it's quite the opposite, that if you are depressed and you have been in chronic pain a long time, and the Mm -hmm. chronic pain can lead to depression, your pain receptors, and they're all in the brain and spinal cord, um become sensitized it's almost like flinching if you if you punch somebody enough they start to brace before the punch in some electrical way the feeling of pain is almost anticipated so how right. do you break that vicious cycle i don't have an answer to that <laughs> and we know narcotics are not the answer to that because they temporarily tamp down the perception of pain but feed into that vicious cycle and after a while after a while, that the pain actually feels worse when you're on narcotics. Narcotics are meant to be for a few months; they're not a lifelong solution to pain. Yeah. Some other things that I noticed about pain were interesting: is when we do awake brain surgery, you can touch the naked brain with your fingertip or delicate instrument, and the patient who's awake does not know they have been touched. The brain cannot well, I it's feel. It's not
0: built to be touched, is it? You know,
1: it's not (laughs) exactly right. By that time, it, it was no longer in commission. But you're exactly right. It feels through the nerves. It sends out 12 paired nerves into your face and your neck. It sends down a spinal cord with infinite nerves into every millimeter of your body. Those tentacles are the eyes and the antennae of the brain. So those tentacles, we also know in certain types of crush injury, If you have your finger crushed. If you have a car accident, after the repair, if the nerve fibers, when they heal, and they can, outside of the brain, spinal cord, you can get a lot of nerve fiber healing. If they don't line up right, they can lead to a little little callus uh, of nerve tissue that sends horrible pain into the brain. So we know that it is electrical signals in the nerves we know they send up stimuli that are noxious into the brain and we know that in certain mental health conditions those can be sensitized right and so the challenge for for pain physicians is how to break that cycle how to gain momentum going in the other way
0: and have you ever come across someone who's been able to almost teach themselves to to break the cycle i mean to people i can
1: tell you i can tell you people who have taught themselves to break the cycle have endured pain for a limited period of time i'm not a pain expert i'm not a chronic pain expert but deep meditative breathing can help with after surgery pain when we have literally just cut on you hours ago right so that acute pain that pain that you're unfamiliar with it's almost like you can brace for that better through meditative techniques and calming yourself. But the pain that has become a partner in your life, there's a psychological component. There's a vicious feed forward cycle that I don't have an answer on how, how to break that. And that is that that is the enormous challenge through the world.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you a simple, what might be a simpler question then It also might be slightly, um, not a, not a terribly academic sort of question, but you were, okay. you were saying how the, the brain doesn't actually feel pain, you know, so you know what, during a, an operation, if someone's awake, they don't actually feel you mm-hmm. doing your thing to their brain. What about a headache? When you get a headache, it's your head that hurts, and sometimes it feels it's right in the middle, right in your brain. What's that?
1: I know, very good. Excellent question. So do you remember when we talked about the – the pneumatic drill, and you know, you, the, the bone turns to dust. And I said the brain was covered yeah. by a sheath called the dura mater. So that encases the fluid. That's what creates the aquarium. Um, that sheath has nerves in it. Okay. And then the muscles where you, the stem of your glasses are, the temporal muscles there, temporalis muscles, those have nerves in it. So when you feel a headache, it might feel like it is in the deepest core of your skull, but it is being felt from the cape and the covering of the brain. Uh, the pain uh, is localizing deep inside your skull, but it's not actually coming from the flesh of the brain. All right, okay. Very good question.
0: <laughs> you you'd sometimes hear of people um, getting over pain um, with kind of self-hypnosis. And actually I've heard stories of people – Hypnotising themselves and then being operated on by a dentist, a dental surgeon, and them doing this kind of stuff that you know usually they're used to having to give someone a, a local anaesthetic; otherwise, they just leap out of the chair in pain. Um, mm. How, how d- does anyone know what mechanism can be happening there?
1: We don't. Um, I, I know there are fancy words like hypnoanalgesia. And there's this feeling that, you know, hypnosis can help the perception of pain. I think it does. If somebody says they don't feel pain, you have to believe them because it's a personal dimension. It cannot technically be measured. Uh, like you can measure blood pressure, or your body temperature. And now another vital sign we always ask the patients about is pain. But we don't measure it. They report it. If somebody says, I didn't feel pain under hypnosis and you can pull out my tooth, I'm no one to deny that. And yeah. what we do know is, we do know that hypnosis, um, for those people with chronic pain, when they do fall asleep, if their sleep isn't disturbed, they don't feel pain while they're asleep. So, hypnosis is a type of dissociative state where you're kind of awake and you're kind of asleep. And I think through the brain waves being of sleep brain waves, uh, patients somehow don't feel pain at the same time they're not aroused or awoken out of sleep either i don't have a mechanism or a biological explanation of that but we did look and read a lot about that i just think it's i think it works for some they get to tell us when it works but Mm -hmm. i just don't have i'm not saying it doesn't work i just don't have a, a good biological explanation for that
0: okay okay so yeah so if i may i'd like to ask you another question which is kind of a bit unfair i think really. Uh, I was talking to someone recently, and this is my own experience as well. If I stub my toe and it hurts, I tend to swear, and it kind of feels better. And I was talking to someone that had done some research <laughs> on this, and they were actually saying that swearing seems to involve a different part of the brain. Uh, quite why that helps with pain, they didn't know. But have you heard, heard of such things?
1: I have heard of it, and I think in the age of social media, and the age of conventional media, and also sort of going back to uh, headlines in, in conventional, you know, paper newspapers, uh, people do silly experiments or investigations. And sometimes those are the ones we hear about because they're kind of fun. They're, they're good banter. So I did hear about that, that swearing can be a stress release. And I would say, that's no surprise to me, but does it have to be profanity or is it just sort of a, a vocal release of energy and there is no, no area in the brain, no language sort of, um, basis for swearing being connected to, uh, feeling less pain. But we do know that people who, uh, scream or shout or exert themselves in sport, um, have, have mentioned that they feel, uh, they feel better with it, they feel uh, like they can swing uh, a tennis racket harder right. uh, with a grunt or with a moan there's There's no biological explanation for it that i've seen in the literature i'm not again I'm not saying it's not true it's just something that's very hard to test yes um it, because because again it'd be it'd be reporting right it'd be like go ahead and say the f word and then you feel less pain in your leg. It's just such a tricky way to uh, it's such a tricky thing to test we may never get to the answer and just have to go by anecdotes and intuition.
0: Well, I, I suppose in many ways that that sums up the whole pain thing a lot. It's because it is, um, like you were saying before, you can take blood pressure, you can take temperature, all this stuff, but it's very hard to um, take pain and kind of catalog it because it's just different for everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we've had surrogates where well, we can look at the blood pressure if you're in pain, it tends to be higher, but they're so, they're not exact. And so we rely on people to tell us things. And uh, there was the joke or somebody said, well, you know, the dentist Maybe going back to that. Somebody said, where does it hurt? And he said, well, in my mind, of course, uh, that's where all pain <laughs> localizes. Yeah. I think there's something important to pain modulation um, being a type of brain modulation. So there are some catheters that we can tickle deeper parts of the brain, and people feel the the emotional thermostat for obsessive compulsive disorder or uh, binge eating, they can be reset. And There is this thought that the brain's thermostat for feeling pain has been set wrong, either through feeling it too much, like after an injury, or or having mental health issues, or being uh, sensitized to pain. And the last thing I'll say to that about, about that is there may be a genetic component. I don't think this is the main story, but there is a story about a family <clears throat> in Asia or there may be somewhere else um, where they're missing a certain gene and they just don't feel pain. Uh, not emotional pain, but the, they step on a nail and they may not feel physical the pain, pain as much yeah. physical pain. And we see that also with people with diabetic neuropathy. If they have diabetes and the nerves in their feet are, are no longer responding appropriately. They can go ulcers and different things. So it is both, it is both anatomical and it is both mysterious because there's a, an emotional and a cognitive component to the degree with which pain is felt. Yeah. Hence the global challenge we face with dealing with pain. My, the patients I take care of it's after surgery, they're on heavy narcotics. We take them off the next day. We put them on a different thing. That kind of pain is actually more predictable. The chronic pain you brought up that becomes a part of your life, um, I think is uh, is tremendously challenging and will require sort of behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, and a gradual weaning from that uh, feeling and sensation as much as, um, as much as the time it took to become a chronic pain syndrome. Right. For, for the
0: shorter-term pain that you're explaining that – maybe you deal with a bit more after an operation. Do you notice if there's any difference between men and women in how they deal with it? Because people often say, yeah, women are just better at dealing with pain.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we make that joke and I don't know if they're less, uh, I think they might just share it less. I think they're just, they're just, it, as a huge generalization, it seems, I think they're just more courteous patients and less willing to bother the staff and call the nurses. And they can be <laughs> extremely, they can be extremely gracious. Like they feel like they're being, and it tends to be the women, or, women who are in their sixties, seventies and eighties. We always joke, uh, and I don't use the word older, I use the word less young because I've been corrected many times, but, uh, women who are less young seem to be, you know, from a doctor, surgeon's point of view uh they are they're often the easiest patients to take care of uh in that way they okay. they report pain the least
0: right so it might just be that us men make more of a fuss it, it could well be <laughs> i mean that's certainly what my wife would say um,
1: <laughs> to say yeah yeah
0: exactly. okay so look absolutely fascinating um can you please just say the name of your book again and where people can uh, get hold of it if they want to find out? A- you know, just read more of your life lessons from a brain surgeon.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to do that. And I think just to clarify, um the book is also in the United States under a different title. And uh, the one that's in the UK I think is uh is spot on because it's Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon, but the subtitle is so dear to me. The new science and stories of the brain. Oh, okay. It's not preachy. It's not preachy. It's just here's some science you may not know. Here's some stories that might help you, uh, open your mind and and, and think about things differently. And if you can take something from it, there are some tips in there, but in no way is it meant to be didactic. And I I love that subtitle, the the new science and stories of the brain. Okay.
0: And what, what's the, what's the book called in the States?
1: It's called Neural Fitness, uh, Brain Surgeon Secrets to Creativity and Improved Performance. So that's good, too. It's just a different audience out here. I, uh, yeah. uh, I think they're looking for uh, a quick read, what can I get out of it in an airport? And the UK audience, it seems to me, um, very keen on stories before you get to the solutions, if you will. <laughs> you know, you have to sort of... You know, steal your heart first with the stories, and then maybe you'll be more receptive to, uh, or you'll be receptive to, um, well, how, did, how could this apply to me?
0: Okay. Well, hopefully, uh, in chats to come, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the uh, other topics you, uh, you cover in the book. But thank you so much for chatting about well, what a neurosurgeon does and your book and a, a bit about pain. So, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for including me.
3: Okay. UK, run by my daddy.
2: I hope
0: you enjoyed the chat with Dr. Jandile as much as I did. And we're going to have future programs with him discussing different topics to do with the brain. And uh, I'll, I'll just go through with them so you know what to expect. There's going to be sport endeavors, or actually any endeavor, when the right mindset can help you to succeed. And we'll try and look at why a little bit. Extreme physical endurance and the role that the brain has in that. And also some advice on studying and staying calm for exams, or actually anything stressful for that matter. Do any of you know the the great show Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps, Please? It's a great show, one of my favourites. And I speak with uh, Will Meller who plays Gaz in that show, amongst lots of other roles, actually, I have to say. And um, we talk about uh, swiping on phones and how easy it is to just waste a lot of time doing that. And also the issue of, of children spending a, a lot of time using their phones, plugged into their phones. Our kids are a, a, a similar age. So I, I found it uh, useful to get his, uh, his ideas on how he, how, he, how he deals with that.
3: UK okay.
0: run by my daddy. Smartphones are fantastic, but actually they can also be the the bane of our lives. We can end up wasting loads of time on them, just scrolling all the time. And uh, now I chat with Will Mellor, uh, actor Will Meller, and also Kate Parkin. She's head of growth at OnePlus and OnePlus make phones. And we talk about scrolling, ways to spend less, so we don't waste so much time and just get a bit more out of our phones and have a slightly better phone and life balance, I guess. But I started off by asking Will if he was an an addict to his phone.
2: I, I don't think I am, but I think I'd say, I wouldn't say an addict, I'd say I have a habit. And the habit is... Literally, I don't even know I'm scrolling when I'm scrolling. I think my phone does it itself, even when I'm asleep. It's just, you can't help it. It's just a part of, we don't know what it's like to be bored anymore. So if you have some downtime or you're on your own or you're laying in bed and you're just, you, I'll, I'll be scrolling whilst watching the TV sometimes. it's And they say men can't multitask. I've proved them wrong now.
0: <laughs> what's the wor- What's the worst example you've got? The thing you're most embarrassed about of using your phone in a terrible situation?
2: I don't know. I, I, I've got one that is, It wasn't me using it in a terrible situation. It was somebody else I was working with. I was an, working with an actress. I was doing a scene um, on set filming, and you're supposed to have your phones away or off or whatever. And uh, We were doing a scene together, and the shot was on me. So I'm acting away, and the camera's in my face. And she's not looking at me, and, and I find out she's actually scrolling on her phone whilst doing the scene with me. <laughs> and I thought, that's how intense I am as an actor. I've got her, I've got her <laughs> attention. really
0: command. I really attention. command the
2: attention of my fellow actress. And no, I had to stop filming and just went, what are you doing? And Oh, yeah. She was saying the line. She just wasn't looking at me. She was looking at her phone. That's multitasking. All right, it's best. So, but,
0: but, I mean, that's like a sacking offence, isn't it? It's got to be.
2: Yeah, I thought so.
0: <laughs> okay, and look, this other stat, we've, we scroll 40 miles a year. Yeah. What does that even mean? 180,
2: 180 metres a day. That's, well, well that, your thumb travels. No, that's, that's how many, that's how, you know, as you scroll page to page to page, that's how, how far in distance it would cover.
0: God, that's, that's just insane. Well, do you know what you All need right. to
2: do? OnePlus have got a quiz, right? And it's, um, it's on the social media, so it's on Facebook or Twitter. If you go on this, have a look, and you've got to put your, everything incorrect, and you'll find out how much scrolling you actually do.
0: Okay, that sounds like, like a good plan. Well, let, let's bring in Kate at this point. So, Kate, you're, you're head of growth of OnePlus yeah so i mean how many phones do the oneplus make
3: well well, our market share is definitely increasing and actually we're the fourth premium smartphone in the uk
0: okay so essentially kate you're saying this is all your
3: fault (laughs) i don't know if you can vote me (laughs) but actually it's it's all about balance i think and especially at oneplus we care about your work-life scroll balance Um, So definitely, obviously, you know, participate in your scrolling as much as you like, but definitely take some time out as well. Put your phone down. um, Some of those moments, if you're going to walk into something, you've got a
2: Zen mode as well, haven't you, on the phone?
3: Yes, that's true. So we have Zen Zen mode. mode.
2: What's that?
3: It is a. It's a a functionality where you can basically block your phone from any distractions for 20 minutes. So put your phone down, do something else for 20 minutes, and then pick it up and scroll to your heart's content.
0: Okay, all right, but uh, there's no question that us all scrolling can and just been addicted to our phones can cause some, you know, serious sort of issues. I I deal with people that have back pain and neck pain. And there's just a lot of this caused by using the phone too much. Do 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 you come across that?
3: Yeah, so I think it's, we said this before, it's about balance. And I think the tech companies are now trying to think about digital wellness. So when is it that you use your phone and when you don't, and people consciously thinking about it? And I think this is becoming more and more of the conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. and it, well, it's a good conversation to have, actually, because I've heard examples of, like, silica, bosses in Silicon Valley that make all this stuff, not allowing their children to have smartphones and i think bill gates his kids didn't have phones until they were teenagers and you know i think it's because they know these guys know how much effort goes into making these things addictive so they say to their children right you're not having it
2: yeah i'm the same i didn't give my kids until they went to senior school the phone just because of safety i wanted them to be able to be contacted uh, if needed once, uh, get, you know, once they get a bit more freedom. That was the reason why. And also, also, there's an app you can get. You can shut your kids' phones down. I mean, there's parents out there. It'll be mortified to even mention it. But I, I mentioned it to a, a relative of mine. and said, you know, you can get this app and you press on it and you can shut their phone down. So if they're supposed to be in the homework and they're on their phone, you shut all the. They went, oh, my child they go mad. I said, well, who's the parent here? <laughs> you know, shut it down. I mean, Do you know what you're talking about? Health. Uh, about the, I think it's actually the, the health issue is more about people walking into things when they're on the phone scrolling. I mean, there's, there's, I think it's one in 10 people have missed their bus stops or miss, or missed their train stops or walked into a lamppost whilst yeah. they're on the phone. There's a health issue for you.
0: I've, I've missed a train stop. And I actually, I'm embarrassed to say, I found out about this interview... When I was sitting on the loo yesterday, scrolling through <laughs> my ear. Oh God! One, go. of the 20%.
2: One of the twenty percent. One of the twenty percent sat on a yeah. loo, scrolling.
0: Terrible. But well, I do want to ask you about the children because my children are a similar age, I think, to yours. I've I've got a daughter fourteen and a boy nine. Yeah, mine's
2: fifteen. Boy and hasn't 11. got a
0: phone yet, but the daughter has a phone. Yeah, and she does she does use it, you know, quite a lot. But it it worries me that you know she's spending more and more time communicating with this bloody phone and not the rest of the family. Yeah. Uh, you what, You've got what to do control you do? it.
2: You, well the, it's it's difficult because you're fighting a losing battle because if all of her friends are on the phone and on their Instagram and Facebook and the, on their socials. She is being social. Uh, it's just not in the way that we used to do it when we were younger. And uh, and also, you just we, we, I do certain things like when we when we have dinner, when we go out for dinner, there's no phones at the table. As I say, no phones at bedtime. Because obviously, if, if they've got a phone in their bedroom, you know what I mean? They can be on their phone, on social media, all through the night. So that's not on... Um, and, then, and just to make time to go, like, on a Friday, we have Friday film night, no phones, we're watching, and, and, you know, the kids respond well to it. And I think, you know, as I say, it's it's as, as and when and, and as much as you think is right, I think that's what you've got to do, put a little yeah. cap on it every now and then.
0: No, I think you're right. And actually, for me, there's an element of, <laughs> I've got to get the balance right, of, do as I say, not as I do. Because, well, exactly. I, I, you know, I, I'm sometimes guilty of this as well. and it's, I, I, I have had my children telling me
2: off. Yeah, we all are. I mean, my wife does it all the time. He's, he's on his phone again while you're on your phone. You can't really tell him off if you're scrolling and going, "Listen, you're on your phone too much," and then you've been on your phone all night. You know, it's so you got to lead by example a little bit. So that's what we all do when we all go for dinner. No phones at the table, including mine and the wife's. And you know, it's it's some small things like that. But honestly, make sure you do go on this quiz and you've got to be honest out there. This OnePlus quiz and Facebook and social media on Twitter. Have a look.
0: Also all right, from- tell tell us, tell us about the quiz a bit more and what what I can win.
3: <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let Kate tell you. Well, basically, you're asked, you'll be asked a couple of questions in terms of where you scroll, how you scroll, why you scroll, and then you can find out what type of scroller you are. Because basically, we found that only 7% of people when they're looking for smartphones are thinking about their display. But actually, when you're spending up to four hours a day looking at it, I think it becomes quite an important part. And same from a health side. Actually, the manufacturers in OnePlus are instituting modes such as night mode to make it all easier on your eyes as well. Yeah. So there is people thinking about this.
0: Okay. So you you're getting data from this competition about people's scrolling habits and their phone habits in general. i I'm, I'm no sure you No data. You've...
3: No data this one. This one's just a fun social thing.
0: Yeah, it's just Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I, but... <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> no, but got to be honest. Yeah. No, but what what I was leading on to is that, you know, this technology has caused an issue, you know, with we talked about neck and back pain and not sleeping and wasting too much time. Mm-hmm. But Hey, is, is there, does the technology have an answer to this obsession as well? You know, what's the thing you're working on to solve this problem for us all?
3: Well, so that's what we were talking about with Zen Mode. I think we're trying to encourage people to think about the balance and how long you're spending on your phone so that you can make sure that it's a conscious decision rather than trying to make sure that you're addicted.
2: Yeah, and if you're an adult as well, you've got a responsibility to when you have children, just to maybe be a better parent and not just stick an iPad in front of your two-year-old and go, "Keep quiet." You know, I think the, we've we've all got responsibility to to, to uphold, and um, I think as a parent, as an adult, that's your responsibility. You know, I mean, I wouldn't be giving a child five years old a phone. I don't see why they need a phone, but that's my personal choice in my personal opinion um, and I think once the child has is, uh, is reached the teenage years now they obviously can start being a bit more responsible and making their own decisions but the groundwork you've put in you'll see at the back end mm-hmm.
0: yeah no I, I think you're right and actually I, I, I've seen examples of um, quite young children with uh, iPads and phones and thought oh goodness that's not right I've, in fact, I've almost intervened. I've just managed to stop myself, and I'll the probably same. end up do, with a black eye.
2: I do it all the time at restaurants, where you'll see a, a dad and a little boy, and it could be his one weekend he has with his son, and he's got an iPad in front of him, and the dad's got an iPad in front of him, and they're at dinner. And I just, this is your chance. This is where you talk. This is where you find out what's going on in your son's life. You know what I mean? Listen, if, if you think parenting's easy, you're not doing it right. So don't don't, don't, don't <laughs> replace right. it. Don't replace it with a screen. So
0: in that, in that situation, do you lean over and say something? Cause I haven't got the courage to.
2: I talk out very loudly, I go, I think that's disgusting, man, why don't you try having a conversation? I say that to the wife quite loudly. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but the thing is,
0: I've, I've seen you on the telly, you're a bit bigger than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I might get decked.
2: Well, then you know, it, it, is, it is difficult because it is personal preference, and, and you know, if I, if someone did come over to me one time when my son was very small, and I was trying to, I was feeding him, and he wouldn't sit down properly in the chair, and I kept saying, you sit and, and he ended up spilling his food all over his head. and a woman came over and said, well have you thought of maybe putting him into a high chair he's very young you know and I went why don't you go back over there and keep watching and sit down mind your own business so <laughs> I didn't like being told either
0: <laughs> no well it's it's well bringing up children and being a parent is kind of a, a whole another uh, topic and we could probably have a series about that but yeah. <laughs> certainly just let's have a, a last word from both of you about how to control the habit of too much scrolling
3: Okay, well, so in terms of, I think it's just balance. Take some time out in the evenings, maybe put your phone down, and then scroll the rest of the day.
0: Yeah. I think that sounds like a good
2: plan. Yes, um, yeah, it's, it's one of them, isn't it? It's um, everything in moderation. It's the same as anything in life, I say. Everything in moderation is fine.
0: Lovely. All right, perfect place to finish. So, guys, thank you very much uh, for chatting about this. Uh, Will and Kate, much appreciated.
2: Thanks very much. Bye. Bye-bye now
0: thank you very much to my guests this week and they were dr rahul Jandial, neurosurgeon and neuroscientist actor will meller and kate parkin of OnePlus. and of course thank you to you for listening that was mike dilke of relax back uk thank you for listening and please join us again next time